farmer who had lived here wasn't like most farmers, it appeared. You hadn't noticed when you'd arrived. A farm was a farm, right? As the buds on the peach trees swelled, the spring teased the region with the premature sensation of heat while it was still cold. The sun bared down on the landscape while the wind sliced across the fields. It was one of those weird springs that refused to break for good. The nights were still cold and the weather wouldn't stay consistently warm for long enough to feel ready to call winter completely over, so everyone angrily kept their coats on as you explored the property. The field was about 50 acres, and with a smirk on his face, Charlie showed you that the forest behind the property wasn't full of pines and oaks like most of the region, but that it had been planted heavily with chestnuts and hazels growing like diametric opposites along the slope. The hazels looked like an overgrown bush, a hand shooting up from the earth, scarred from years of cutting down the main stalks. It had been some decades since it was last done, but the hazels paid no mind. The stumps showed no signs of rot. The chestnuts, likely 50 years old or more, dropped more nuts than the chipmunks could carry, and saplings sprouted up everywhere. It was clear the trees were planted on a curve in an organized fashion at some point, but once you entered the forests more than 50 feet, it was hard to tell. The hazel hands reaching up to the sky across the woods felt like some dystopic scene, and a small part of you expected the earth to begin to give way. You gazed into a crevice in the soil brimming with hickories. None of the nuts were edible, and you recoiled back, but Charlie didn't seem to mind. We'll eat good this fall, he said. The plan was to bring the forest to its former glory, which wasn't a bad idea because the farm was gonna need a lot of firewood, and without chainsaws, the thin fingers of the hazel looked real appealing. You had no idea how deep the trees were planted, but you had a hard time imagining it would ever end. It was still early in the morning, and the remaining chill in the air hovered across your face and froze your breath to the stubble of your beard. You were never a morning person, but you'd found that, without TV, you had simply resorted to sleeping at night because there was no power in the house. You watched the sun slowly breaking over the crest of the hill in the field and counted the seconds as the frost line erased with the pitch of the sun, like the slow imprint of a refrigerator in the distance clicking on. A grunt in the woods shook the air, followed by the pitter-pattering of hooves. Before you could slink deeper into the forest, Charlie put his hand up, mouthing in a caricaturish form, P-I-G. Maybe there'd be a spring feast after all. Like a bad dream, you remembered that you didn't have any weapons anyway. Well, you'd assumed. Charlie was probably carrying a knife. You didn't think you could just kill a pig with a knife. But what the hell did you know? The noise stopped. Charlie eased. We're coming back tonight, he said. Let's bring the spring in in style. Hey folks, welcome back. This is Andy with the Poor Proles Almanac. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find us on Patreon if you'd like to help us cover the costs of hosting the podcast. We don't explicitly offer any of our traditional content focused on the specific goals of this podcast, 
to our Patreons in terms of limited access or anything like that right now. Knowledge is for everyone, but we have started up a Patreon-only miniseries called The Prologues, during which we do some critiques on various subject matters and talk about these issues not only from an intersectional lens, but also within the context of this podcast, societal collapse and reconstruction, environmental issues, and so on. Thank you to our Patreons, Sam Gates, MJ Wallace, JerBear205, Lucas Glenn, Little Fox, Ember Limerence, Eric G., and Kenneth Henderson. You guys are absolutely amazing, and there are no words to describe how much we appreciate what you do. For the rest of you, here's a quick clip of what we're doing over on the Patreon-only section. It's important to think about what new ways we can uh, integrate the landscape as it evolves to meet what we need and also to help the landscape further uh, succeed. And using all of, I guess, resources to count as inputs. And I feel like part of the sustainability approach to food, which we've been talking about in these prologues, it, it, it's bringing more symbiosis to the natural world and how we live with it instead of taking out all of the outputs that we generally get and not put anything back, I think, I guess I'm just trying to say it's a more cyclical approach and the system should be a cycle based on the complex systems that we've taught, we've been talking about. If you're interested and you are willing to donate $2, it's up on our Patreon. We've also released one episode that was asked by popular demand for public consumption. So that's a good place to check it out and see if you'd like to hear more. And if you're a cheap bastard like I can be after decades of growing up poor and dumpster diving after Christmas to get people's old TVs and shit, if you're looking just for the content, we'll have some more up shortly, so maybe wait. We don't want people who can't afford to donate to give us money for content. We just want to provide something extra for folks for donating, because we're not good at getting things in return for nothing. So if you can't afford it and you really want to check it out, please reach out to us and we'll figure something out. While we do enjoy making this content, there is about 20 hours worth of work that goes into each episode, so any support we can get to offset our actual costs, we fully and wholeheartedly appreciate. So go check us out on Patreon. As of this episode, the running dot we've got is over 300 pages. So if you want some context for the work that goes into these episodes, there you go. Each episode clocks in at around 17 pages of essays, plus the stuff I add in while we're chatting about things. So if you guys remember writing papers back in school, even on a subject you cared about, it's still a massive amount of work. And we do it because we know it needs to be done for all of you out there who are nervous about what's going on with the planet. So yeah, if you're going to throw us some support, whether it's through donations, referring us to friends, coworkers, random people on the street, whoever, we appreciate it. Additionally, if you are using iTunes, please give us a review so more folks can find the podcast and hopefully join us on our journey. Reviews are incredibly helpful, and we appreciate seeing your time and effort to give us feedback and help us stand out in a vast sea of podcasts. Reviews help us rank higher in searches and also helps us as we try to start incorporating guests onto the podcast, which means new exciting content for you and you'll get to hear different voices other than the two of us rambling on. We will be having our first guest in a few weeks, and we'll chat about that when it gets closer. 
We've also been growing fairly consistently, and that's pretty much entirely to the work you guys do by giving us reviews and telling other folks about us, and it's awesome. We'd like to think that what we're doing is unique and valuable, and our hope is that we can present the current challenges facing the planet in a new light that gives hope and a sense of liberation through understanding how we can individually and collectively make meaningful change. Lastly, we're on Instagram and Facebook if you want to follow us over there. We don't just post updates about the show, but we incorporate leftist and ecological history, as well as some foraging, hunting, and botanical knowledge that we find interesting. And, of course, we've got memes. If this is your first episode, we highly, highly recommend going back to the first episode of the podcast and catching up, since each episode springboards from the previous content. Further, this episode is not necessarily a part of a series, but the previous episode was focused on swale systems, while this one is focused on key lines, and since there are the two primary ways of managing water on a property, listening to them back-to-back kind of makes sense. You don't need to listen to it if you're really just jonesing for some good key line talk, but I definitely would recommend starting over there. So, what are key lines? Well, let's start with what their purpose is, and I'll refer to the godfather of the subject, P.A. Yaumans, who says, in quote, A principal aim of keyline is to increase both the depth and the fertility of the soil so that the soil of farming and grazing land is safe and permanent and capable of continuous improvement. Thus, productiveness of the soil is increased and the quality of its products improved. Keyline seeks to remold the landscape first by the proper assessment and appraisal of all the natural and renewing resources of each individual area on which it is applied and second by special methods of planning designed based on water control and land management to use those resources to the utmost for bettering the soil. Soil, the raw material of all agricultural pursuits, owes its existence and its state of fertility and productiveness to many factors. The principal circumstances which have determined a particular natural soil are 1. the mineralogical and structural framework, 2. the prevailing climate, and 3. the soil's biotic associations. Likewise, those three factors in combination determined the type of the natural landscape which contained or housed the original soil. All present farming and grazing practices have involved a drastic interference with the previous landscape. It is the manner of that interference which is the utmost concern in Keyline. End quote. Fortunately, we have covered a lot of the framework in previous episodes, primarily the forest succession and the soil episodes. It's almost like I had a plan putting this whole thing together. Almost. So the basic purpose of keyline design stems around the basic understanding that by giving oxygen and water the ability to penetrate into the soil, we can increase the depth of the soil quickly, increasing the organisms that live within the soil and allowing roots to penetrate more deeply into the soil, allowing biomass to accumulate deeper into the soil, and ultimately allowing the soil to hold more water because of that biomass. Further, as we will discuss, 
By working with the topography, we can guide water in similar ways to swales, but done primarily underground. So the general idea here is that we're going to build soil downwards, as well as we're continuing to build that topsoil by our chop and drop and all the other biomass accumulation methods we have. Keyline plans the evolution of the replacement landscape on the two most permanent features of the natural landscape. One being the existing shape and form of the land, and two being the climate, which in large measure has molded and determined its present topography. As the course of water is determined by the land form over which it flows, all the water lines of land are individual to each property because of the endless variations in their topography. So if you did listen to the swale episodes before this, we had talked about how water runs across the path of least resistance. We're talking about that again. Therefore, to fully understand and assess and plan water control and water movements, the various component shapes of the land have been classified in the geography of keyline. So what is a keyline? This is what causes a lot of people to really stumble or just simply ignore key lines and focus on using swales because key line is a bit more complex than basic swale systems. And I highlighted some of this and why a lot of swale designs aren't ideal because the legwork is rarely put in to reassure that the swale designs are appropriate for the site. So I know that first quote was pretty long, but I do want to take one more quote and that's pretty much it that we'll do. But Yaumans is the primary person to go look for when you're thinking about key lines. And Yaumans states that, in quote, a key line is a level or sloping line extended in both directions from a certain point in a valley called the key point. It marks or divides the two types of relationship, always in the same vertical interval that a valley bears to its adjacent ridges. In one of the relationships, that above the key line, the valley will be narrower and steeper generally than the adjacent ridges on either side of it. In the second relationship, existing below the key line, the valley will be wider and flatter than its immediately adjacent ridges or shoulders. The approximate point of that relationship change in the valley is the key point of the valley. A line, either a true contour in both directions from that point, or a gently sloping line rising in one direction and falling in the other direction, form the key point that is the key line of that valley area. All points on the line marked with the various heights are the same height as indicated by the figures. End quote. On a specific contour line, let's say 100 feet, all points are 100 feet above what's called quote-unquote datum. Datum very often means sea level, but maybe any other permanent point. Contour lines on a contour map are placed at regular vertical heights apart. The distance apart is called the vertical interval. On farm contour maps, these range according to the type of land formation and accuracy desired. On flatter planes, these contour lines may exist every 6 or even 3 inches, while on steep hills they may exceed 10 feet. The space or interval between two contour lines is referred to as a contour strip. A contour map exhibits the formation of land by means of contour lines. 
This should all, at this point, sound kind of familiar to how swales are planned, right? At this point, we haven't identified any significant differences, but we are focusing on a deeper level of detail because key lines require a deeper level of detail. And I know that quote was probably a little confusing, but we're going to come back to it and really dissect it so that it makes a lot of sense. Because those six or so sentences highlight everything you need to know about how key lines form. And we're going to spend about another half hour talking about that. But before we talk about that, I want to dig into where this came from. So back in the 1930s, while the Dust Bowl was destroying the Midwest, the United States Department of Agriculture realized the value of contour design farming and recommended that farmers convert their production to contour farming. That is, farming crops based on a continuous flat plain to reduce runoff and soil destruction. The problem farmers faced was that their equipment was not designed for this type of farming, and it became quickly a case of the government not understanding what the people doing the work actually do. And this system wasn't perfect, and we're going to cover it really quickly. Yaman was one of the folks who saw this response by the farmers and decided to take the principles of this research and develop it in a way that could become useful. So the challenge with this kind of farming is that it required that you follow the contours of the property. If we remember from the swales episode, contours are that level space. So if you're at 50 feet above sea level, anywhere on your farm that's 50 feet above sea level is on that contour, not 51 feet. So when we're talking about massive farms, that creates major problems when you're working with huge pieces of equipment, right? If you're looking at, say, a slope, there may be parts where the 51-foot marker, for example, might only be 6 feet wide and your tractor is 40 feet wide. It just didn't work for the scale and the way our farming had developed. So Yaman's goal was to find a way to apply this and also speak to the needs of the farmers as well. So what happens when we do these key lines? Generally, after a very heavy rainfall, after the ground is completely saturated, the water starts to run towards concentration lines in the valley. So what the key lines do is interrupt this tendency of the water to run towards these concentration lines in the valley. By doing this, we cause the water to drift away from the valley where the water would naturally otherwise run. The flow movement of this excess water is widened, and its flow is also kept very shallow because of the fact that it's running along multiple contours. The necessary time of concentration by doing this is increased enormously, thus holding the water on the land longer. One of the things we talked about in the swales episode is the longer the water is sitting on the land, the more of it that is able to become absorbed into the land. This is the same idea. Ultimately, what happens is the rainfall of maximum intensity when it's raining the hardest no longer has that destructiveness to the soil because it has such a long path to run. And using those contours, we're reducing the amount of vertical runoff that takes with it those essential nutrients. So cultivation above the key line is first completed to enable the land, usually the steeper areas, to absorb the maximum or all of the rain that falls upon it. This prevents rapid and concentrated runoff onto the flatter slope areas and so protects all the land from water damage. Now that's the 1,000 foot view of key line design. 
And I know that was probably confusing if you've never heard of this before. And it is something that makes more sense when you see it in person. Because of the technical nature of this subject, I'm going to use a lot of examples to cover how to visualize how keyline design is developed and implemented. So this episode might be a little different than most of the other ecologically focused content we've covered at this point. Before we even get into it, Like everything, there are certain factors to keep in mind before you even begin to assess where the key points are on your property, and those are the slope, the soil type, the soil permeability, the intended use of the site, the equipment you'll use on the site, and the depth, type, and structure of the bedrock, that is, the mineral foundation below the soil. The slope, for obvious reasons, can impact severely how you will design your system. The soil type will indicate how much runoff you have already and how resilient the soil will be to intense water flows. Soil permeability play into that soil type because the health of the soil will increase that permeability and reduce nutrient runoff and damage downhill. In contrast with swales, key lines are meant to be used for both tree and annual crops in different ways extending your options for what you can grow. And lastly, the equipment you're using on the site will impact what measurements you need your site to be able to be contained within. When we speak about bedrock, it's important to remember if your bedrock is near the soil or subsoil, it simply cannot absorb more water. Excessive water absorption can lead to things like mudslides. So if you're in an area where that could be a concern, please, please, check with a local professional. So there's some basic understanding of hills and valleys that are needed to understand the landscape and to identify key points. Let's start from the very, very basic beginning point. And I'm going to go through this kind of slow because it's definitely, I think, even for people that are into permaculture, one of the last subjects to get into because it can be so confusing And it's definitely something that's more cash intensive, or at least people have that impression. It doesn't have to be, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that, that you can get away with doing stuff like this for a couple hundred dollars if you're willing to make those investments and you have the right resources already available. Hopefully this will make sense, and I'm confident that the example I'm going to give will help simplify the whole process because it really did for me. Imagine you're looking at a big hill. The very top of the hill, the main ridge, is the first thing you notice. That's where the sun comes up. That's that crest. You'll also notice as the hill rolls down towards you, it's not like a pile of sand dumped on a counter with smooth edges, but instead has bumps and dips across it as it comes down to you. The area where it seems to raise higher, relatively speaking, down the slope are called ridges, and the areas where it sinks lower are called valleys. Makes sense, right? That shouldn't be too complicated. What you may notice, especially if you're looking at land that was not graded off for suburbia, is that those valleys that sink down generally have two things that make them stand out. The first is that usually the grass growing there looks healthier. This is because water follows the path of least resistance, and the lower spots get more water to run through them, as well as that nutrient runoff. The second is that Over time, and in many cases a millennia, that water following the path of least resistance has created a steep drop-off into that valley, 
the same way a canyon has been carved into solid rock over millions of years. This is the same process. In the bottom of that steep runoff, before where the land begins to slope back to a similar topographical drop-off, the same way the rest of the land continues to run down the slope of the hill, that's your key point, right there. Because the water runs quickly to that stop and then slows down, a backlog of water takes place, and we use that to create key lines. If you're like me and you live in an older house that has old countertops which slope a bit down, when you have a cold glass of water and the condensation runs off into the edge of the counter, usually before it actually runs down the countertop and onto the floor, it pools and begins to spread. That's what's starting to happen, and we're going to control that spread further with key lines. We're going to exploit that. We can trace that key point to create key lines using the same concept. So we'd spoken about contours and how we want to keep that same exact topographical level, whether that's 75 feet above sea level or 200 feet above sea level. By keeping the water from not being able to go down further and having to spread out, we're able to spread the water where we want it. So once we know where our key point is, we want to go up and down the mountain following that trail of water. Where above the key line does a landscape change to show that water is beginning to funnel towards the key point? Where is that siphon? That is, where does the landscape change to be different than the rest of the hill? That's the beginning of our valley. Conversely, where does the impression from the waterfall no longer make the land appear different from the ridges? That's the bottom of your valley. Much like water that pools at the edge of our countertop and spreads across the very edge of it, that's what we're trying to extend as far as possible by identifying where the water is starting to collect and where it pools at the bottom. Make sense? I hope so. From there, we can identify the key line, which is that contour height of where our key point is. Again, think of that counter metaphor. The key point is the edge of the counter where the water is collecting, and the level edge of the counter, that is, the topographical height of the key point, is your key line. In nature, of course, this key line is probably not a straight line like on our counter, but runs across the same topographical height. As we identify this contour point, we can apply some of the basic techniques of swale systems to our methodology, which is why I wanted to cover swales first. Once we have our key line, that is all that space on that contour, we can start to repeat this same contour shape going up and down the hill at equal increments, work our way down until the slope ends and up until the top of the lowest ridge. If you recall, the ridges are the bumps on the hill. And what I mean by work our way down is that we mirror the pattern created specifically by the contour of that key line. Let me say that again. What I mean by work our way down is that we mirror the pattern created specifically by the contour of that key line. We are not trying to keep the original shape of the landscape. We are trying to make the valley below the key line have the same shape where we're cutting in so that the water spreads evenly across the soil. Think of the terrace farms you've probably seen in books that were and are common in Japanese farms. We're not doing that. What we're doing is cutting that underneath the soil 
So those key lines will direct water flow underneath that with that shape, where if the hill bumps out because of the ridge and then comes back in towards the valley, again, wherever that key line is, that 70 feet or 75 feet above sea level, we're tracing that shape as though it were on the surface for our key line, except it's going to be underground because we're going to be using a subsoiler to dig into the earth, tiny slit that follows the pattern of that contour. And then we're going to go five feet downhill or two feet downhill or six inches downhill, whatever it might be. However, the topography of the land is to be able to trace that continuous shape that that contour makes, not what the landscape makes, but what that contour makes. The idea is that the key line is where all the water is funneled to. And by manipulating the way gravity forces the water to travel, we are forcing the water to travel across more soil by decentralizing the valley in the water it receives. Water always flows perpendicular to the contour line, like on our countertop. So as the contour lines ebb across the property, regardless of the hill structure of the property, it will follow the pattern that we have cut into the landscape. We're able to plant trees on what was traditionally dry land ridges without irrigation because the water is efficiently traveling across the same exact contour lines at different topographies. No site is getting more or less water than others. The added benefit to this is that we're able to make those contour planes the same size. Above the key line, we want to mimic the shape below the key line that we have been so focused on as far as up topographically as we feel is necessary for our project. Now, you might be wondering where a key line ends. Well, it ends where a ridge begins, and that's usually where the contour line changes direction, like the middle point in an S where the lines begin in the other direction. Again, those ridges are those bump outs on the hill, not where the valleys go in, but kind of where it humps out. So at some point, the valley stops being inward, and then it starts adjoining that hill. That's kind of like that middle point in the S where it's changing directions. That's where your key line ends. Now, we will match the parallel contours on the ridges, which if we recall, bump out instead of receding into the valley, giving the landscape that topographical map look that we associate with terrace farms. Generally, these ridges have far fewer water management problems and are not as a focal interest in developing this system. So if you guys do a quick Google on what farm looks like after a key line system, you're going to see that most of the trees and the various crops and things like that are planted in weird shapes, and that's because they're planting along these key lines. So you can see how the landscape goes up and down based on the key line, not the actual topographical map of the hill that it might be on. You're actually following how that key line point is level so that the water, say you do cut in a key line that looks like a giant U, for example. If you put a U another six inches or a foot down on the topographical map, now the water has the same distance to go traveling through the soil versus maybe trying to follow the actual hill landscape where it's going to follow a different path. Because we're cutting lines in underground, the surface doesn't matter. What we're doing is measuring if we're at 56 feet above sea level, we're not measuring two feet down from 56 degrees above sea level. We're measuring a foot or two or three or four feet away from that line that we already cut in for that first key line. 
So I really want to make that clear because this can be a really, really big point of confusion for a lot of folks. And I get why it is confusing because you're starting with this idea of topography and then you're ignoring the topography from there on out because you're using that first key line as a reference point. So one thing you might be thinking as you listen to this and imagine tearing up your property to build something like this or to cut in something like this is the kind of jagged topographic structures in your property. So you might already notice where your key line probably is and you think about, hmm, it's already kind of a weird shape. So if I actually follow that key line to you know, the very square inch, it's going to be a weird shape. How do I work around that? It might be very pointed because of rocks and things like that. What folks have figured out is that we can use geometry to adjust those harsh angles and soften them essentially by dividing the angle equidistantly. What I mean is, for example, if your key line follows a sudden, say, 40 degree angle, consider making it two 20 degree angles that soften that curve the way you might kitty corner a TV stand to soften the corner of a room. Because land is never simple, uh, don't expect it to be something where you can just split the difference and there will be a lot of trial and error to make the land work for your equipment, if that's a concern of yours. But I'm guessing most folks that are listening to this are not managing that kind of farm. But it is something to be aware of. The key lines are the natural path of the water flow that we're exploiting. So when we cut in a key line, which can be up to 36 inches, we're guiding how water is flowing below ground by providing the water the path of least resistance, starting with where it's collecting, which is at that ridge point at the bottom of the valley. Therefore, while we cut in the key lines, which we'll discuss exactly what that process is shortly, this also reflects the planting pattern of our crops. While technically the water will saturate throughout the regions where the key lines exist, and we'll discuss what that spacing should be towards the end of this episode, this is why most trees are planted right next to the first key line cut, so they have access to that water. So you can often see the contours of those farms and how they applied this system. We're not actually looking to dig and move soil to make a contour the way we do with swales rather identify the water's natural path across the property and direct the largest flow so that it can spread as far as possible. And doing this requires an understanding of the landscape that we can manipulate. Hopefully at this point, this is all starting to come together for you. Unfortunately, if you go on YouTube, there's not a whole lot of good examples of this, so it's going to be a little difficult. Mark Shepard is a really great resource, and I highly recommend if you need a visual of this, he is a great place to start. When we go from the theory of keyline to the application, one of the first things you'll realize is applying is much more complicated than the theory. And the theory isn't super simple. What I mean is that for 90% of us, myself included, key points aren't an explicit point on our property. And in many cases, we might have what's called secondary key points and multiple ones. And trying to marry these different points in the random ways our topography jams into itself can be a tiring effort to understand, even if you understand where to start. There will be anomalies, and almost never does this stuff go completely by the book. Experienced people struggle with this in practice, even the ones who teach classes on it. That said, keyline systems are overwhelmingly positive for sites, even if they're not perfect. An imperfect system still is going to move water in the right ways. It just might not run it 
as far as you want it to. What often happens is you will build out different key line patterns, which means you might try to do one valley at a time, see how each plays out, and impacts the rest of the site. You learn from those examples. Or you might just focus on running water in various directions, some that will eventually fizzle out over the landscape and others that lead into ponds. The reality is that we all have to be pragmatic as we try to iron out the weird anomalies that inevitably end up on our site. Part of this pragmatism is things like to match the curve of our equipment as it works, dealing with spots that may randomly run uphill for a couple yards, and working around exposed bedrock. Depending on who you talk to or listen to, some folks will tell you that you can only build keyline water retention systems on a primary edge, and they'd be wrong. Well, sort of. From a technical, academic perspective, they'd be right. But since we live in the real world, that kind of nonsense doesn't really help us. Once you understand what a key point is and what they will look like, you'll see them everywhere. Oftentimes, on land that has never been cultivated heavily, you'll see, say, five key points in less than an acre. Anyone that tells you those don't count are just being gatekeeping dicks, so we're going to ignore them. The methodology still works, so there's zero benefit to articulating the abstract argument that primary edge key points are the only real key points, unless you're getting a certification in key line design, at which point you shouldn't be listening to a podcast for your advice, right? One of the things we really haven't touched upon yet is that in slowing down the water on the property and keeping it on the property, ponds are very likely to end up forming, especially if you live in a rainy area. The goal is to try and control where those ponds show up, usually at the bottom of your valleys or at the end of your key lines, and then trying to guide their overflow into ponds further downhill if you have enough property. These overflows are often what we might want to call a swale. We can put ponds on either ridges or at the base of both valleys and ridges. Now, Yaumans was also interested in figuring out how to collect water in ponds at the highest elevation possible in order to store and use gravity to feed lower regions with water as it was needed. After the key point has been identified, the continued topographical drops below this are interesting because the land tries to balance back out with the slope patterns of the ridge. The same way if you try to stack rocks up really steep on one side and sloped on the other, the steep side eventually tries to collapse to match the gradual slope. So if you have a bunch of steep drops where the water has been running down and it hits a key point, where that steep slope stops, the next few topographical drops tend to be very small drops over a large space. These are frequently used as ponds. It's the highest, most economic water storage site in the valley, as any further higher is an expensive place not only to build a pond, but to fill that pond, while this spot is naturally conducive to water collection and is likely the flattest part of the hill of the property. These ponds can be built up using a dam that matches the height of one of the ridges, as long as you build out enough soil and rock material not only to contain the water's height, but also with plants on the dam to help solidify the dam with their roots. Oftentimes, an overflow pipe will exist to allow for more weight on the dam while also allowing drainage that can run into another water system. With 40 feet of height, gravity irrigation from a dam will have as much pressure as, say, a spray irrigation system and can be used as such. 
This would give you the benefits of spray irrigation for your annual crops if you wished, while letting gravity pick up the energy costs. While my interest, at least right now, isn't on talking about how to incorporate something like this, I do want it to be something in the back of your mind if you're thinking about something like this over the long term. The cost of building a dam comes down to a ratio of earth moved to water stored. When determining the ideal minimum shape of a dam, the length of the wall across the valley, that is the wall you're going to be putting up between the two ridges, should be less than or equal to the distance water will back flood. So, for example, if your new pond from the key point to the dam is 30 feet long, your new dam should not be longer than 30 feet from ridge to ridge. The ideal depth of a pond for this purpose is between 3 and 20 feet depending on project size. The depth should include 3 feet of soil above the emergency runoff pipe we had mentioned before. The height between the full water line and the top of the wall above the spillway level. This compensation will allow for three feet of freeboard during rain events where three feet depth of water evacuates the dam via the spillway. This extra safety precaution is to compensate for large 50 or 100 year floods. If we recall from the swale episode, calculating runoff can give you a good sense of how many cubic feet of water you'll collect from rain to give you a good guidance on how much extra space you'll actually want. Now, I mentioned putting in spillways. Spillways control the overflow of water through a wide level gap in the wall, which can be made out of concrete or it can be a pipe. The water flows evenly and slowly over the spillway and onto land outside of the wall that is also graded nearly flat. We can also use some of the tools we discussed in the swales episode to reduce runoff issues from this overflow. From here, the water will be treated as rain that falls outside of the dam and its watershed. Now that we understand how this works from a very local point of view, I want to pull this back out into the context of the other areas we had talked about, particularly in forest succession. One of the key focuses of that episode surrounded how the topography impacted which species did best where, And in a system that highly segregates this topography, it inevitably will also exacerbate those extremes. For folks looking to make microclimates or trying to keep a site as warm as possible, which I think is an interest for most people, keyline patterns, which create lanes based on that keyline contour, which creates lanes that can direct cold air towards the middles of the ridges as it funnels through the valleys. If your goal is to, say, plant trees along your key line, leaving gaps in the planting pattern or access tracks placed on ridge centers can help the draining of cold air. While we all want to create the densest, most efficient site possible, it's important for us to be pragmatic about what our needs are in terms of accessibility and the functionality of the site is just as, if not more important than its productivity. Now, I want to take a hard turn into the side of keyline design that has been getting a lot of press lately, and that's keyline subsoiling. We touched on it a bit earlier when describing Yalman's interest in building better soil, but without building the contour keyline systems, subsoiling had little value. While subsoiling isn't necessarily a new idea, applying it in this system allows us to maximize its benefit. While traditional plowing pulls up the topsoil to accelerate 
the biology within the soil over the short term, keyline plows work to create access points for biology to work deeper into the subsoil and ultimately build topsoil downwards in contrast with our common understanding of building new topsoil over the old. The most common example for this plow is the narrow shank profile, which is only an inch or so thick, cutting into the soil up to a few feet deep. The soil is cut open and looks as though someone rolled a massive pizza cutter across your property. This allows oxygen and biology to penetrate into those deeper regions in the soil, helping it aerate and ultimately allowing the roots to penetrate deeper, accessing vital nutrients and minerals, while also minimizing surface damage of the water runoff. I don't want to get too deep on this, but simply to get you exposed to what the process is, we generally want to subsoil whether the soil is neither saturated or excessively dry, and often is a repeated process. Considering nearly 80% of all land in the United States was once farmland, chances are there is a plow pan somewhere in your subsoil. If you don't recall plow pans from our soil episode, it's from when the plows were run through the fields and aerated the soil above the plow, but compacted the soil below it. These are generally 10 or so inches down, and the first time you subsoil, you'll likely be focused on breaking through this. Some folks will continuously subsoil, sometimes in excess of two and even three feet, while others will subsoil a couple times for the first few years and be satisfied with the current state of their soil. Not only does subsoiling help build your soil and improve the life of your plants, it also allows for massive carbon sequestration. Additionally, if we recall from our soil episode, biology in the soil allows for more water absorption, and in creating more soil, not just dirt, we are exponentially increasing the water absorption of our site, significantly reducing the risks of flooding, runoff, and the need to water, even during dry spells. After implementation, the Keyline system offers a number of benefits. Some of those benefits are seen immediately, such as the stoppage of erosion, while others take longer to show and are not as overt, such as restoring subsurface hydrological flows. Still another boon offered by a keyline system, particularly the system of dams, is the abatement of both floods and droughts. This restores aquifers and ancient subsurface flows. These aquifers and subsurface flows act as a battery. Once recharged, the surrounding landscape will come alive as springs begin to dot a once dry landscape. Further, this battery of water will regulate the flow of rivers, preventing large floods by slowing the water and compensating for the flow lessening ill effects of drought. Additionally, water that takes a leisurely subsurface course will have time to be naturally filtered. The results of this would be rivers carrying less sediment. Compared to swales, keyline systems are vastly more intimidating for a number of reasons. Because it's usually a larger scale, it requires outside equipment, the involvement of geography and math can make it feel impenetrable. I get it. The first step is to take a look at your local GIS map. Just about every state, as far as I'm aware, offers this online if you Google it. You'll find sometimes it's not very accurate, like my property. However, it will give you a good starting point. With a level and some graph paper, however, you can start to put some pieces together. You can pick up a laser level, the best option for this job, 
for as cheap as $60 at Harbor Freight, and I think I saw one for even $50 for Black Friday. Using bulk sticks and string, you can start to mark out your site, and for a couple hundred bucks, you can rent a bobcat if you need to in order to remove obstacles like boulders or tree stumps, like what I'm getting ready to do in the spring. If you really don't have any equipment, but you've got the land, you can rent a tractor for a day for less than $300 in most parts of the country, and if they don't have a subsoiler to rent, you can pick one up on Amazon for about 200 bucks. So my point is that for probably less than $800 and a week's worth of work, you can do this. It could even be less depending on what equipment you already have available. It's intimidating and everyone might think you're nuts when they see you running across the property digging up these weird lines, especially if you're in the suburbs, but you can do it. Now, there's a few practical questions, and again, the goal of this podcast, at least at this point, is to provide a broad overview of these areas so you can pick and choose the areas you have an interest in and dig in deeper. I'll probably eventually get into deep dives in some of this stuff, and I'm hoping we can bring in some guests that can talk about some of those more complex details that I can't, but that's probably a long ways away from right where we are right now. I'm sure a lot of people who tuned into this podcast thinking they were going to hear specific details about, say, making their vegetable garden or some basics on fruit trees are wondering how we're almost 20 episodes in at this point. We really haven't done anything but discuss big picture concepts, so I do want to get there, but hopefully by now you're starting to see why all these basic principles of ecology and fundamentals of water management and tree management are so integral significantly more so than, say, identifying aphids in your garden. With this information, we have a strong framework to be successful gardeners in a long-term system before we even put a seed in the ground, right? Anyways, I wrote this episode, and now as I'm recording it, I realize there are a couple points I wanted to clarify. When we talk about the topography of the land, most people are on fairly flat land, especially in suburbs. For a lot of people, these topographic changes may only be a few inches, and that's okay. The idea isn't that we need a massive slope, but that we're going to be cutting in this key line shape continuously across the property, keeping that consistency between the spacing of where that key line is and all of the new cuts is imperative. When we're cutting those in, we actually also want to keep in mind that at the furthest apart, we only want to have our cuts 30 inches apart. And if your goal is annual crops, you're going to want to make them at least 15 inches apart. So if you're planning on cutting in, say, key lines for a wheat field, you're going to want to run your shank through at least 15 inches apart. Like I said earlier, this is usually a multi-year process, although it doesn't have to be. But this will allow for long-term productivity. And on a large site, you're going to get burnt out trying to do this multiple times. Even one run-through on your site is going to increase your water management and your production significantly. Further, you might be listening to this and thinking, well, this doesn't sound like we are following the rules of nature, which has been a big guiding point for us up until now, and in a sense, you would be correct. One of the challenges we face today is that there are almost zero places left on Earth that are inhabited by humans that hasn't been degraded. Not because humans are naturally destroying the planet, but because our understanding of how to live with nature and that's caused nearly irreversible damage. But we do have a scientific understanding 
of how things are done naturally on the earth, we are capable of taking those processes, like the wearing of the lands by time, to create decentralized water systems that flow water efficiently compared to taking millions of years in the same way we can use our incredible ability to breed species to be more resilient to the changes of climate change, we can accelerate the landscape's ability to also be resilient. And while we have been agents of negative change for the recent past, we can be just as effective agents of positive change. With all of these different areas, I've tried to talk about my experiences with them, and this is one of the few that I haven't actually gotten to do with my hands. I've taken classes on it, I've talked to folks that have done it, but I haven't had the opportunity. However, I'm hoping to do it on my site soon. My current challenge is clearing the forest, since, understandably, running a subsoiler through a forest on a big tractor might be a bit of a challenge. So, we'll get there, and if you decide to dive in and give it a shot, or maybe you already even have, shoot us a message and let us know how it went. Obviously, at this point, I wasn't able to get to Glay Ponds, As of right now, looking at the recording, there's no way to do it, so I don't think it's going to be a huge loss for this particular episode, but we will touch on them in the future. In our next episode, I think we're going to dig into this concept of scale of permanence and how it should define our thinking as we look into managing our landscape. We'll be pivoting at that point to think about the big picture. That is, we have all these areas of intense knowledge. Now, how do we understand which are more permanent? and therefore, the decisions we should be more thoughtful about. It will frame up our conversations we'll be having regarding the major focus areas of agriculture, such as permaculture, regenerative farming, natural farming, Korean natural farming, and others. So hopefully this episode was a challenge and in a good way. I've read numerous books on the subjects and, like I said, sat through numerous classes, so I think the way I explain the different parts makes a lot of sense and it made a lot more sense than most of the things I've seen online, at least to me, so hopefully it was helpful for you. The complexity of Keenline is, in my opinion, a large reason why swales are so much more popular. You're no longer working physically with the landscape in a topical sense, but tackling the bigger picture of why water management is a problem on the site. That said, it is in understanding these more complex ideas that we can build better, more resilient systems that reduce the need of inputs and increase sustainability exponentially. And of course, Yalman's book, Water for Every Farm, is an absolutely great first place to look for information on this system. It is the Bible of key lines. However, it is a bit of a dry text, and if you don't have a basic understanding of how these systems work before you read it, you'll end up reading it like five times before it makes any sense. I referenced Mark Shepard earlier and Richard Perkins' Making Small Farms Work are both more accessible texts that cover a comprehensive list of the various subjects that we've covered at this point, as well as regenerative agriculture, but they also have small sections on key lines, so I definitely recommend finding them if you can, although they can be expensive books, so I wouldn't recommend them as purchases if your sole interest is getting a better understanding of keyline systems. If you guys have an interest in digging further into this subject, I'm happy to do so, but I'm guessing a lot of folks are ready to move on from the subject because it is complex, and in some cases it is out of the scope of what most people listening to this are looking to do. So with that, 
we'll end our discussion of key lines, and we've got some really interesting stuff coming up. So thank you all for listening. And as always, this is Andy, and this is the Poor Pearls Almanac. Thank you.